one day a, a, a woman had taken her son to the park uh, just to go and play. And so when she got there, she sat on a bench um, where a man was sitting. And after a couple of minutes to strike up conversation, she said, um, see that little boy over there in the red? That, that's my son. And he said, oh, he said, well, see that little boy in the slide in the, in, in the blue? That's my son, Todd. And they sat and they had a little bit of chit-chat. And finally, the, the man got up and he called out to his son. He said, Todd, come on, we, we got to get going. We got to start heading home. And like every little boy, the little boy kind of pled with his dad, you know, just give me five more minutes, five more minutes. And so his father said, okay, all right, you know, five more minutes, but then we got to go. So he sat down for five more minutes and he did a little more chit-chat with the woman on the bench. Then he got up and he, and he called out to him again. And he said, um, come on, come on, Todd, we, we got to go. We got to run. It's, it's time to go. And the boy said to him, dad, just five more minutes. Give me five more. And so uh, his father said, all right, five more minutes and we got to go. And he went and sat back down on the bench. And the, and the woman looked at him and said, um, boy, you, you are a patient father. And he, he looked at her and said, well, haven't always been that way. About two years ago, my son, Tommy, was killed by a drunk driver on his way to the park. I didn't spend much time with him. In fact, I spent very little time with him. And I promised myself that I wasn't going to do that with Todd. Then he looked at the boy going down the slide one more time and he says to the lady, he thinks I'm giving him five more minutes to play. What I'm really doing is giving me five more minutes to watch him play. It's incredible, isn't it, that we can hear sometimes the saddest of stories and all of a sudden those stories be shifted from pain to healing, from confusion to a sense of understanding. How does that happen? How does something painful or bad end up becoming something acceptable and salvageable? It's found in, in, in a process, and more than just a process, I would say a divine process. And the process is found in one of the most unlikely words that you could come across. The word is sadness. This morning, we're going to look at that word. We're going to look at that emotion, that feeling. A couple of weeks ago, we began uh, our study looking at emotions and asking, you know, what do you do with them? What do you make of them? We began the study because we noted that emotions are important because God gave them to us. 
And God gave them to us because they are just one more reflection of the image that God created us in. Because as we noted, God is a God who experiences emotions. He, um, he gave them to us because they help us to experience his love right to the very bone. And we said last week, God has given us emotions so that, that we might feel in the depths just how much he loves us. That in our emotions and our feelings, we experience truth. We experience it to the point that our cardiovascular system reacts, our nervous system reacts, our digestive systems react. Because God doesn't want us to just understand truth. God wants us to know it, to have an intimate experience in it. That we might know him better. That we might feel his good and perfect and pleasing will and the truth that he has given us in Christ. That we might be drawn nearer to him and in the process we might be drawn nearer to others. When we started this a couple of weeks ago, we said, um, we laid out two kind of ground principles. The first week, the principle we laid out was this. Emotions are to reveal what we think, not rule how we behave. Emotions are to reveal what we think. There's one thing true about emotions, is they reveal believe to be true but that doesn't mean what we believe to be true what we feel is actually true and so emotions are there, there to reveal the truth of uh, excuse me to reveal what we think not rule over what we be, how we behave because what we feel is not the voice of God but it's what's going on inside of us and so by knowing what we feel we know what we think and then we take it and we align it to what God thinks and how God would have us to think. The second uh, principle that we laid out was last week. And that what, when it comes to our emotions, our first emotion needs to be devotion. Our first emotion needs to be devotion to God. And so that as we experience emotions, we need to take those emotions and bring them to God because we said last week, they matter to God. God has given us these feelings, these emotions, and they matter no matter how small because God is so intimately and intricately involved in our lives. And so we take them and we bring them to him and in that process, we honor him. This morning, we're going to look at uh, sadness. Um, let me give you just a, a brief definition of sadness. In fact, it's really brief because sadness really means our emotional, nope, that's not it. Our emotional understanding of loss. Sadness is when we come to understand and feel and experience some kind of significant loss in our lives. And 
how do you measure that? Because what's significant to one person? You know, a young kid who wakes up on a school morning anticipating the promise that was made to him by the weatherman the night before that there was going to be snow and they were going to get a snow day and finds out that someone stole that away from him and he's going to school. You ever remember that when you were a kid? I can remember being just like devastated thinking, I got no school tomorrow. I don't have to study. I don't have to do any. And all of a sudden it's like, nope, you got school. And you just feel so, I mean, yeah, is that sad, sadness of a loss? Sure. It can be the loss of a friend who moves away or the loss of a job. It can be the loss of trust that we place in somebody. And of course, it can be the loss of a loved one and even the loss of character. Sadness is about loss. Um, But it isn't just about loss. Because if sadness is handled right, then sadness becomes a process. In fact, researchers say that sadness actually sharpens your memory. That people who are sad have a sharper memory than people who walk around elated all the time because they're more tuned in to what's going on around them, to the details of what's going on around them. Um, not only does it in- improve memory, but um, it improves our judgment. That people who are going through tough times where they feel loss and sorrow, they're more grounded in the decision. It increases our motivation. Because we've all been there when, when we're sad and we go through the process it motivates us to move forward, to pursue greater gains and greater promises. Sadness, believe it or not, increases our generosity. And I I was interested when I read that, but that sad people are more generous people. Once again, because they're more in tune with the suffering of people around them. So they're willing to give because they understand what it means to hurt, what it means to be in pain. Sadness is also a requirement for salvation. What's the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know that there is this deep deficit inside of them that they don't have the righteousness needed. They don't have the holiness to be able to approach God and to be acceptable. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know it. And the second piece of that are blessed are those who mourn, who experience the sorrow of their state because you don't come to Christ unless you can experience sorrow, sadness of the loss of innocence. You can't come to Christ until you know it intellectually and you feel it emotionally. 
Because it's only then, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Well, even before that, blessed are the meek. Those who are willing to be humbled because of their sorrow, because of their sadness. It's a requirement for salvation. I was talking to a gentleman the other day and he was talking about one of his, his children and, and just how far, far away they have gone from him and from Christ and their anger and bitterness and, and struggling with whether they were still believers. Can you be angry and bitter and walk away from the calling and the ministry of Christ and be a believer? I don't believe so. Because the sadness is always there over our sin, which is replaced by the gratitude or, or healed by the gratitude of our salvation, but we never just ignore who God is and what God deserves of us. Problem is, what happens when we don't deal with sadness? Sadness is experiencing loss. What happens when we don't deal with it is we move from sadness to grief. Maybe you can put that up there. And from grief to depression and from depression to despair. It's okay to be sad. You see it in the Bible. What is grief? Grief is, is when you kind of move beyond sadness and you begin to, to struggle with the loss. You begin to either it or try to negotiate it or blame God or other people for it. You know, we talk about a grieving process and, and what we're really talking about is a sadness process. Because grief can be a little more trickier. Even though we use the word in our culture as kind of a normalized thing, it's really sadness we're talking about. Grief becomes a, can become dangerous. And depression is just when we take that sadness and it becomes so maladaptive that we end up just ruminating on it. We end up becoming victimized by it. We end up uh, engaging in all sorts of behaviors to try to self-medicate it. And despair is just when we throw up our hands and we give up. I lay that all out for you because I want to share a passage of scripture with you. And I want, to, want you to understand the depth uh, and the breadth of it and, and the process that we're going to see in this of how we should react to sadness in our lives in a healthy way. In a way in which our pain culminates in healing, not in greater dysfunction that leads us away from God and disables us from ministering to other people. Passage we're gonna look at comes from uh, 2 Samuel chapter 19. Now let me give you a little bit of a, of a recap on this or for the, some of you who haven't had a chance to read it. Um, the passage is about David's son uh, Absalom. Uh, we, we first find him... Um, in a story involving his sister Tamar, 
whose half-brother was uh, a man by the name of uh, Amnon. Amnon really liked his half-sister, which is really weird. To the point that he just pursued her. And finally, when he was able to get her alone, he raped her. Absalom, of course, was livid at what happened. And so he called Tamar to come live with him. And she lived with him for two years. And in that two years, Absalom plotted his perfect moment to deal with his half-brother. And so after a couple of years, he invited him to a party. And when he came to the party, he had his servants kill him. Well, fearful of what his father would do, Absalom split. He took off and he just, for two years, hid out. David was in despair over losing Absalom. And so he sent his uh, servant, uh, Joab, to go find him. Joab was uh, David's captain of the army and he was um, David's nephew. And so he went and he found him and he brought him back. But for about two years, David didn't have anything to do with him. David wouldn't allow him to come uh, into the palace. He, he kept him away. And finally, Joab, after about two years, was able to negotiate kind of a brief reconciliation. But it was brief. Because as soon as Absalom got back into some favor with his father, he began to plot against his father, David, who was king. He made himself a judge in Jerusalem and became a crooked judge because what he would do favors, trying to curry uh, their influence and their acceptance of him. And over time, he declared himself king of Israel. To the point that it freaked David out that Joab had gained more influence, at least in David's mind, than David had. And so David grabbed his family and he fled. And Absalom came into his palace, I mean, his palace, and he took over everything. In fact, just to rub it in David's face, the concubines he still had left there, he slept with, and just treated the house like it was his own. And then began to plot how to hunt David down and do away with him forever. Luckily, David had Joab with him, who was a pretty sharp captain, and he beat Absalom to the punch. And so he took David's army and he went after him. And David had said to him, look, when you find him, just treat him gently. Don't hurt him. Well, the story kind of ends with Joab finding Absalom. He uh, was riding on his horse and don't ask me how, but he got his hair tied up in a tree branch, long hair back then, and got unmounted from his horse and was just kind of dangling, trying to get himself unstuck. And when Absalom came upon, I mean, when Joab came upon him, he killed him. But didn't tell David that's exactly what happened. And so that's where we pick up the story. 
Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Now, think about this. You're in the army, right? You're in my army. And I send you out to go hunt down and kill one of my foes. And, and to fight his army, right? And then you come back and I grieve that he lost. That's motivating, isn't it? We went to fight for you, for your kingdom, and we come back victorious, and you grieve that we won, and he lost? Joab was just furious. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal and who are ashamed when they flee from battle. The king covered his faith, face and cried aloud, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubine. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. See, I mean, that's part of the problem with sorrow. If we're not careful, everything can get distorted. Understandably, he was sorry that he lost his son. I don't care how much you're... You'll always love them because they're your kids. And yet he began to, to idolize Absalom. To forget everything that had happened and to forget why these good men went out and risked their lives. And so what they saw happening was you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. See, the problem with sadness is if we let it go down that path of, of grief and depression and everything will get turned upside down everything will get distorted. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord, if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the, ting, so the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Why? Because that's what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to go to the gateway, sit there, and give these guys honor and praise and celebrate with them their victory, that they weren't humiliated in defeat, that they were by the grace of God, able to come home and to be victorious. David was right on the edge. 
He could have spent the rest of his life just in this trance, allowing his sorrow to turn to despair. But because one man who understood God's will was able to give him a reality check. And so the pain culminated in the process of healing. Here's a takeaway from the story that I want you to have that we're going to look at for a second. And it's about healthy sadness. Healthy sadness honors what has been lost while embracing what has been given. Healthy sadness honors what has been lost while embracing what has been given. Given by God. This goes back to that second principle. Devotion has to be our first emotion. So even in sadness, yeah, it's okay. It's necessary. In fact, if you are not sad over some loss in your life that's significant, then it really means that you didn't appreciate what God had given you. Everybody would have understood if David had gone to the gates and celebrated, but they could also see a twinge of pain in his eyes. They would understand that. What they didn't understand was the complete opposite. Where David had forgot about everything he had been given. And all he could do was honor the loss. Sadness becomes healthy when it allows us to honor what's been lost while still embracing everything that God has given us. Why? Because we understand all these emotions are something we bring to him. Because as we honor the loss, we honor God. And in that process, God honors us. In that process, God brings healing to us. Think about times where you have mourned something, but you've mourned it in the presence of God. You've mourned it in the power of God. And God just takes what was lost and he makes it okay. And you're able to go forward. How do we deal with it. When we're experiencing sadness in our lives, how do we bring it to that point where we can honor and yet still embrace every good thing that God has given us? When we can remember even when we've lost a loved one that there are still loved ones around us that matter. When you do it by acknowledging what you're feeling. It's okay to weep It's okay to be sad. It's okay to take time to be alone. 
God wants you to do this. Can you imagine losing a spouse and not crying? Or losing a child and not crying? Can you imagine a husband or wife who runs out and cheats on you and leaves you? I remember a, a man, a, a pastor, whose wife had done just that. And I was concerned for him, and, and so I would go to him every once in a while, take him out for coffee, and I'd say, you know, how you doing? Good, good, God is good, God is good. Your wife just ran away with one of your deacons. Don't spiritualize this. This stinks. Yeah, God is good, but this is not good. Because he went into denial. And when he finally got to deal with it, it was because he had fell into despair. God wants you to feel when you lose something especially when it's something good that he's given you. But two, you've got to assess it. You've got to ask yourself, why did God give this to me? What was the purpose for this? And am I looking at this properly? Because that's that edge where sadness can fall into idolatry where we can make our loss our God and the process turn against God. So it's acknowledging, but it's also assessing how we're looking at this, how we're coping. I've watched people lose a loved one in their family commit suicide and forget that they still had other children, that they had a spouse because all they could do was focus in on that law. Assess. Number three, accept. There comes the point where you have to just look and say, okay, something I cared about, something that mattered to me is gone. When I was a kid, I used to, I used to play in this, I grew up in Hudson, New Hampshire, and my neighborhood bordered on this just picturesque, idyllic monastery. I mean, it was just acres and acres and acres of woods that had these old roads built with, you know, inside of those woods. And when we were kids, we used to just walk out there and play army and stuff like that. And it would be so cool because we'd always see a couple of monks who were walking and praying go by us. And sometimes we'd go with them into the friary and they'd, this building was huge and they had a bakery and everything else. And it was the coolest thing in the world. I mean, that, if, if I remember the best part of my youth, it was, man, it was walking. Because it was just, you'd walk these, these roads through this forest for acres and acres. And it just, I mean, it was like heaven. And now it's a parking lot. Oh yeah, man, I'm telling you. That, that hit me right in the heart. I remember thinking, how could you do this? But you accept it. You lose your income. 
And now you got to give up your home. You can spend your life in sorrow and depression and despair or you can accept it. Because you put it in perspective and you can say, you know what, I was blessed. I had a home. I know what that feels like. God was good to me. And now God is doing something different in my life. And yeah, I can miss it. But I can also look beyond it because if you don't accept your sorrow, even the sorrow of a divorce or a death, then you will negate every good thing God has given you. Number four, appreciate. Live in appreciation of what you had been given even while it had been lost. Think about what God has meant that to be in your lives. Because there are no scraps in God's economy. I believe that wholeheartedly. Everything happens for a reason. There's nothing that doesn't fall under God's perfect and pleasing will. Even the awful, painful things because God will transform them. God will make even the awful things matter. He will. That's what he does. God doesn't want me to call awful good and just pretend that doesn't impact me. Something awful happens. God wants me to weep when I, when I lose something important. But there's got to come a point where I can appreciate what was given and why it was given. And number six, to anticipate. To anticipate the fact that if God has given me this good thing that I've lost, how much more does he have for me? Because we said before, when you put heaven before you, the fear of death stays behind you because you recognize that there are more good things ahead of me. And one day, I won't even remember the things I lost because they won't compare to what God has for me. Some of you might be uh, familiar with... um, a man by the name of John Screven. Um, he was a man who had, uh, if I can find it here, excuse me. Married a, a beautiful woman and he was a brilliant man. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But he had married a woman who was the apple of his eye, she was his heart in so many different ways. Well, he actually hadn't married her because on the night of her wedding, before her wedding, she died. She was pulled from a pond 
where her body was found where she had drowned. And he went into a deep sadness over it. This, this was the apple of his eye. This was his heart. This was the person he had been looking for all of his life. And on the night before his wedding, the night before his wedding, I mean, I don't know about you, but the night before my wedding, I already felt married. I mean, that's how, that's how intimate it becomes. I can't imagine what that would be like. The night before your wedding to lose the one you've decided you want to spend the rest of your life with. As God worked him from pain to healing, he wrote this poem. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we don't carry everything to God in prayer. How does that happen? How does a man who loses a son move on to the point of seeing a better outcome in his ability to love the son he has? Sorrow's still there. It's still real. The loss is a loss. How does a man lose a, a, a woman who's in his heart and mind his wife and then go on and write something like that? Because he enters into the process of sadness and he honors it. But he doesn't stop embracing it every good thing that has been given to him by God. And so he takes even the emotion of sadness and uses it as a tool of devotion to God. And in the process, he sees God ever more clear. He feels his love deeper than he had done before. Because he was willing to take this emotion called sadness, which most of us run from and never want to feel. And is willing to feel it. And then offer it to God. Because God mourns with those who mourns and he heals those who come to him. Let's join our hearts in prayer.